0: um morning everybody so good to be here you know today it's a sad day in the series of summer in the psalms because today's the last day and uh you know as, as myself and reese have been working on this we just hope that it would be uh something that was really meaningful and sticks with us and what it is is we've been we've been studying the songs of ascent and there are 15 psalms in the book of psalms that were written to be sang recited on the way to and when you got to Jerusalem for the holy pilgrimage and they would happen three times a year and the book of Moses, it was mandated that three times a year you were to leave your home and go to wherever the tabernacle was and make your sacrifices there. And so for most of these pilgrimages that meant to Jerusalem, it meant to the holy city, it meant up to Zion, it meant to the temple. And so they would sing these songs as they were going to prepare themselves. They were observations of uh, worship and praise of making these pilgrimages and what they meant to the people. And so, very specifically, they're about those events, but they have such a deep meaning for us. It could mean that it's very much referencing our eternal pilgrimage of going to the eternal holy city, going to God, this life of a Christian, being a pilgrim in this world, and the, the observations of it, the, the encouragement of these psalms are meaningful to that. But we've been specifically looking at them at a very specific way to our lives that there are times in our lives just as the israelites were called to leave normal life and to have a pilgrimage moment when god calls us to specific times to to step up a little more to go and to have a moment of growth or change these rhythms they still happen and there's there's calls from god of when he wants to plant something that is meaningful there are times that when it, it could be a uh, a church retreat. It could be just the feeling of needing to get away. It could be uh, a, a day. There's there's actually a spot. I will share with you one of my my little pilgrim spots that I can go to in a week if I get overloaded. I go up to 24. I grew up in Estacada, so the region's kind of sentimental to me. And I go past Estacada. you go up, 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 and then as you come to the top, is right before it begins to drop down. There's a what's the name of that park down there? Where you can launch your boats. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yes. Uh, right before you get there, as you're at the top, there's this spot where they just leave this huge parking area next to the road, probably to chain up, but we all use it to either either look out at the view or make out with your girlfriend. And I never did the latter. <laughs> I went there to I go up there and i go up there to pray, and it's a space I go to. I found out my younger brother has this specific tree. He goes and he sits under this tree and it's kind of his meeting place with God. But there's just these times when when you feel like you gotta go. You feel like you got to go wherever the Lord is. You need to leave normal life and find something uh, that your heart thirsts for. So I guess the question is, is, what makes you leave? There's many things that I think make us say, I need to cease life how it normally is and pursue God a little more in this time in this season. You know, for me, I, it's very common that I'll restructure the time of my life. Maybe I'll read more scripture or I'll, I'll cut out some smartphone time. The time I spend on a screen... Is, is just too much. There's this thing I've noticed people go up in the, and there's, it's funny, I see them on social media, people doing these pranks. They go up and they film their boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, whatever it is, and they ask them a sudden question. And every single time they approach them, the other person's on their phone. I'm like, is that what we look like now? Are we always on our phone? And so there's just this conviction I, f- I feel often when I want to pursue God, that that phone's got to go away. I'm going to give it up when I get bored, it's, I know it's not going to be fun. It's, it's, there's times when you get so used to having a smartphone, you think, I'm just going to, what, look at a wall? I haven't done that since 1998. I don't know if I want to just sit here and look at a wall, but there's things we do. It can happen very literally of our, of going someplace different to find God or doing things different. It's a matter of leaving normal life the way it was to pursue God. Because I think about these Israelites, they weren't these godless heathen people who never prayed, never worshiped God, did nothing uh, to reflect their deep belief in him until these three pilgrimages took place. They, They believed in God all the time, but still there was a need to leave normal, everyday life and to find God in a special place. So what makes us leave? It could be a sense of duty, a time that we plan for it to happen. It could be an acute need that needs to be met. We're terrified by things in our life, so we say, I just, I need God. I often find it comes for most people because they are dead inside. And the dream of being alive again makes them willing to do something different, to leave normal life for a season, and to find God. Worn out, beat down, drained, hopeless. I find that a dry spirit is the most common agitator to begin any sort of pilgrimage. Grand, micro, for a moment, for a week, for a season. And that dryness is a a theme that comes up strongly in our final song of ascent we read today. Psalms 126 says this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are filled with joy. There's an interesting context to this. You see, the songs of ascent have one thing in common. They're about a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and then they have almost nothing in common. They're not written by the same author. They don't tell a linear story, and they're not written in the same timeline. We've read most of our psalms we've read took place um, after David and before the destruction of Babylon, when, when Israel was living in the space and the kingdom existed. This is interesting because this is the first one we've read that jumps out of that. This is one where this is after the destruction, and it's after the restoration, and it's, coming, it's happening during restoration literature. The restoration literature is several books of the Bible that take place after Babylon has destroyed Judea and God has restored them back. Babylon came, they, they ransacked the place, they moved all the people out to crush their culture, to crush who they were. They created a diaspora of people and they weren't native in their land anymore. And by an amazing miracle, when Persia destroys Babylon, they send them all back. To be a diaspora restored to your homeland is incredibly unlikely. It it hardly ever happens in history. And that's one of the things that gives it away is one, is uh, the people, is the restoration of that's what was taken away as well as the nations talking. Because it would have been surprising to the Philistines and to the Egyptians and to all of the nations that surrounded them that it actually happened that did you hear the Jews went home. It would have been a shock. There's also something interesting that when it says that when the Lord restored our fortunes, what it means literally in, in Hebrew is when the Lord restored to us that which was taken captive. And the captives is a huge theme in restoration, lit of their restoration of their return. This is the last phase of the Old Testament. This is the last thing that happens is the restoration. We don't have anything that happens after they get there and they're trying to rebuild. It's, the story stops and it picks up in the New Testament with the arrival of Jesus. Restoration is the Judeans returning to rebuild Jerusalem, returning to rebuild their kingdom. Be brought back was an incredible miracle to be reestablished as a people, as a nation again, as a culture. And the restoration books, they all have a similar theme. There's this grand excitement at the beginning. We're going back. And then it goes from this grand excitement to this horrible, slog it out, difficult time of resettling, taking back the land and rebuilding the ruins. It's A very difficult time. All the pilgrimages we've read about have come before a constructed temple. They're met by bowls of stew and hot bread. They come to a city that's waiting for them. And in this one, they're coming to a city that likely takes place before Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. It happens, it likely takes place when Ezra is just trying to gather together materials to rebuild the temple. They're coming to a city in ruins. And yet they remember that great moment when the people came back. He reflects on the incredible restoration of the people. To be restored in their fortunes, to be brought back from being taken captive. It was an incredible moment. It was a moment that was shocking. It would have been surprising. There were there were Jews that remained behind in the area, but there were a few, not enough to hold the land. They were poor. They didn't have the resources. They weren't part of the gentry. They couldn't keep it up. They were living like people in tents outside damaged cities. And so to see oceans of Jews coming back was an incredible moment that likely took them by surprise. And it says that we were like those who dreamed. It could either mean that they were suddenly woken and startled by their return or that it felt like a dream. What it really means, either way you look at it, is that it was unbelievable that something happened to them and it was so incredible that even though they're leaping out of tents and they're jumping over dust that was once a city, they were crying and weeping with joy as the people returned back. And yet this time of excitement gives way to tears again, as we read in a bit. All they wanted was to come back, and they hadn't imagined how hard and painful being home would really be. You know, it's a reflection of all restoration literature in this passage that is just, in a few lines, it's almost a whole rest of lit book. But that when we are disappointed with God's work, it often means that we had expectations that weren't correct. We had bad expectations we can't think to ourselves, once this happens, then I can be at rest, as if they had thought that at the time, once we're back in the land, we will cry no more, we will weep no more, and there won't be sadness. The truth is, is that often victory leads to another battle. There is a, that if we put off saying, I'll be happy when all of these things are fulfilled, then I can rest, then I can have a hammock and, and lemonade-style uh, living for the rest of my life. You will always be disappointed god will come through on great promises and bring us into great things and we think it should be over it should be done the psalmist makes the right choice in this passage he is incredibly grateful for the past not saying god why did you do that and just leave us here to die you know they complained like that in the desert they they come out of egypt and they say to moses we should have just stayed in, in in the in egypt why did god deliver us to the desert just to let us die and you don't hear a complaint like that from the psalmist He's grateful for what God did, and he's honest about how he feels. God, he says, you gave us back our captives, and that was like a dream, a dream come true. Now give us back what else was taken captive from us. The current thing being held captive is crops. We'll just finish the psalm real quick and then we'll we'll highlight a few more things. But it says the Lord has done great things for us. In verse four, it says, Restore to us our fortunes like streams the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping will carry, uh, carrying seed to sow, return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. We get this idea that the crops are failing, and indeed that certainly was a problem for the restoration uh, generation. Restoration books tell a story of this terminus farm life that something odd happened, and I don't know how, this, how no one came, but when the Jews were taken out, were taken away, no one took their farms. They were abandoned for 70 years. I don't know how that happens, but no one took them. They, the people that remained behind found little gardens to survive off of. It was a survivalist place. It was like civilization just left the land for 70 years. And now the Jews are doing something they have never had to do. Because it says, actually, when they settled the land the first time under Joshua, they didn't plant fields, they didn't build houses, they moved into ones that were already there. It was God's plan. He tells them in in Exodus that he'll drive out the wicked nations before them, and he'll do so progressively, one generation after the other. So as Israel grows and is able to take the land, he will then push them out. The people were staying there as, as placeholders until the people could take their cultivated land. It's a very interesting concept, but that's not what happens here. They're coming back to wild, terminus land. The Babylonians, when they conquered and the starve them out siege, they went up to the mountains, they took rocks, and they threw them into the field so that the Jews couldn't plant sow or reap to try to starve them out. This is a place to where it is severely overgrown. If you've ever had a garden and you let it go for a year, you'll come back to it and you'll realize that it's going to take a while to get this thing producing again. They'll spend a lot of your time in the first season, first two seasons, you won't get much out of it. And this is the place they come to. They've received back their stolen property, but the property is trashed. This prayer can be broken down in this way. God, you restored the people to the land and now restore the land to the people. And they've come begging God for a reason to be hopeful about their future. And I think there it is right there. That's the thing that calls almost all of us to pilgrim. It came to God of looking for a reason to be hopeful about the future. Proverbs 13, 12 says, A hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. We want a reason to hope. I'm telling you, you can cope with just about anything. There's more strength in your spirit than you realize. But if when you believe and hold a deep-held belief that your future is bleak, that it's going nowhere you begin to die on the inside. A low estimate of of the days ahead is the root of depression and anxiety, suicidal thoughts and addiction. It's a feeling the life I'm going towards isn't worth the, the, the life that goes into it. There's nothing good looking that I have to look forward to. Hope comes from God. That's why we go to him. What leads us out in pilgrimage is a deep desire. God, I feel dry in my spirit. I feel dead. I feel lost. I need something. I need something to hope in. And you know especially where to go. And you've tasted it, and you've tasted the joy of God, and you want to go back. I remember being in in high school. We'd go to to camps, and it's you'd go to camp, and the Lord would meet you in this amazing way, and He would, and, and great things would change, and you would go from a spot of where your Christian faith is rather private. You didn't talk to people to where you're in a room full of 200 teenagers and you're all got your hands up and you're all praising God and you're all responding to what the Lord's doing in your lives. And it's an amazing thing. And you leave there with incredible spiritual health. But then you go back to normal everyday life. And that is a persistent drain. Life really is a game of attrition and, and you would – You would feel less full and less full as time would go on, and you would start to live less and less like anything happened in your life. You got to a point where your spirit felt as dead as a doornail, and you would often think to yourself, I spoiled it all. But what you find is you can't erase God's work. Just because it, it was built into my life in July of my 16th year, And by July of my 17th year, I felt drained and felt like I needed camp again. It never erased what God did. The temple was destroyed brick by brick in that city that our psalmist is in today. But the presence of God was still with his people. Even if you're as dry as a raisin, what makes you go back is the memory of his work. What makes us go back is the memory of how good God is. The dryness of the soul makes you want more. The dream past, uh, dream of the past gives you direction. It gives you somewhere to go. I would imagine that if you had never seen agriculture before, the first thing they do before they plant is they they plow the whole field. And if you'd never seen that before, you'd look at it and go, that is the deadest thing I've ever seen in my life. It is dirt. It's dry. Nothing can come of that. But if you're familiar with it and you've seen it a few seasons of seeds going in and you know that that field that looks super, super dead right now, Looks like nothing will ever be produced from it again. Will reap a harvest that will feed us all year long. You would, you wouldn't feel so anxious. You wouldn't feel so worn down. It's important that we do remember the times God has met us in the past, the things He's done, because that's what drives us on our pilgrimage and advises us where to go. In verse four, it says. Uh, uh, restore our fortunes like the streams of Negev. There's something interesting I want to show you. Check out this picture. This is actually literally, it took me a well while to find it. That is literally one of the streams of the Negev. It doesn't run all year long. The rainy seasons happen up in the mountains. It starts to get a little bit warmer. The snow melts, and they don't know when it'll happen. They don't know what day it'll happen. It's certainly not scheduled, but at some point, the waters come in, and even today, look at them. I was just talking about the smartphones in the Negev. Come on, humanity. Uh, even today, it creates a great event to come out and see it because we don't have maybe the best appreciation for it living here where it's the evergreen area of the country. But desert watershed is a miraculous moment of transformation. I've got another picture here. Not the Negev, but still a, good, a goodie. That's the same valley after a watershed. The Negev was a place that when water came in, it would come suddenly It came surprisingly. It could come in the middle of the night. You could be woken by the sound of rushing water. You could have your neighbors running down uh, on horseback or on foot saying, the waters are coming, the waters are coming. And when they would come within weeks, everything you were around, your whole life, your land, the wild land, everything looked different, dramatically different. There's even a science of of green plants and the way that they uh, bounce off and reflect uh, or the way that heat interacts with them, that if when heat hits green plants, it actually cools the world down. Once they're dead and they dry, it gets even hotter. So it doesn't matter how hot or cold it is outside. When the water comes and everything turns green, it becomes more comfortable, becomes more beautiful, becomes a place that is uh, dramatically different. But when does it happen? It happens when it happens. It happens when the time is right enough to say that in the same way that God can transform dry valleys into gardens with mighty torrents of fresh water, he could also restore the hopes of Israel. He could make it to where these crops that they're having so much hard time with, they're trying to camp it out and live out in cities that aren't fortified, with people that keep threatening to raid them, with uh, magistrates of the empire saying, you can't build here, you can't do that, you can't build your temple here all of the troubles that they were under, God could bring health to them just as he did before. Just as he does every day in the Negev, just as he did when he restored Israel's fortunes and their captives came back to them. He will heal their land and send rain. He does it. And he will lead them in rebuilding their cities and rebuilding the temple. He'll watch over them as empires wage war one after the next, Persians to Greeks, To Romans, when the season is right, a voice will cry out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Out of that Jordan River, Jesus will raise up baptized, ready to preach the kingdom of heaven. In the same way, God can also bring headwaters of heaven to your soul. He can also restore your hope when the time is right. It takes trust. The psalm closes out this way. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those that go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Planting requires trust with God, trust in God. See, a human plants a seed, but God makes it grow. He's the one that sends the water in the sun. He is the one that will make it grow. And there's times that we plant those seeds with tears in our eyes, in a panic in the same way that these people would have been just in tears. They can't even pull it together as they bury seed after seed. Nothing's gonna happen and they're in fear. can't say just because you're not feeling it just because you're, you're, you're just going through the motions that it means nothing. There are times that your heart doesn't catch up with your spirit, that it doesn't feel like things are helpful. It doesn't feel like things are going to go well. The pilgrimage of God to God can sometimes, and often is like planting and reaping. And when we do it, it's when we're at, our, we're at the lowest, when we are at our driest and we have not much to, to go on. And so we just have to simply do what we know to do to go and to plant, to spend time with the Lord, to ask for counsel, to ask for him to meet us, even when we don't feel it. And to not say to ourselves, I, I'm not getting anything out of this. There's God's not, I must be doing something wrong because I still feel dead inside. Starting a pilgrimage can feel dead and hopeless. It can feel like you're planting in vain. I remember a youth group one time and had this horrible crash. We had some, some drama happen with some leaders that blew up and it just made it to where it was about three years into youth ministry, it just crashed and we had to rebuild and essentially relaunch a youth group. And I thought, my goodness, they're gonna fire me. But then I was the guy they had relaunch it again after it crashed under. Uh, and I will say, I don't believe it's my fault in the long run, but it still crashed. It was painful. It was really hard. We had, this, we had this strategy. We wanted to bring in new students, get to know them. So we we're going to have a party and get to know fresh students because we wanted people to come in that maybe didn't know God yet. Take a, take a chance of people that um, were ready to grow. And so we were going to have these parties. And I was in my office alone. Several leaders were, weren't there. We had a couple new leaders. And I was in there inflating these balloons for this party alone. And I remember thinking, I hate this. I do not want to do this. This is stupid. It is, it is silent here. My lead pastor was out of town, so the whole building's just completely quiet. The, I'm looking at the clock. The party starts in an hour. It sounds completely dead. I'm inflating these balloons, and I'm thinking, I don't want to be here. I don't want to do this. There's no way this is going to work out. I'm not feeling it. And we put on that party, and it's amazing as I think back to the, the names and the faces, the people we met, the ones we got to know, how important those those young people are. Now in their 20s, now getting married and having that opportunity to meet brand new people and how meaningful that party was. I'm really glad that we planted those seeds because it's those students that we met, the, the ones that we got to minister to that reaped the, the greatest harvest of that, and we planted them, at least I did, in tears. Sometimes it feels like you're planting in vain. may feel in vain, but do it anyway. because God counts the work of the broken hearted. My advice, I guess, would be this. Trust in the process. Don't trust in your feelings. Trust in the process. Don't trust in your feelings. Trust in the process of going, giving time to God, planting. That you're not the one that has to make the seeds germinate and grow. You don't have to drain up and drudge up that spiritual health within yourself. Plant the seed and let God grow it. Give God the time. Go even in tears. Go and pilgrim your way to God. Seek the headwaters of blessing and hope that your spirit so desperately thirsts for, and don't give up saying it's not working or I'm not getting anything out of this. Plant even in tears. See the Lord of those Negev waters come, and when the season is right, and transform everything—the way your life feels, the way that it looks remember the times of your past when God did such great things. The praise just came out of your mouth as the psalmist remembers today when it was a time of laughing and joy and plant seeds and find God again. We'll make those things grow. We'll make your time worth it and bring your spirit to life again. Lord, I ask that as we, um, as we step away and end this, this series of study, In these beautiful songs of ascent, Lord, I pray that the souvenir that we take would be an ascent. Lord, I pray that you would call each one of us, every individual in this room to a time of ascent, a time of pilgrimage to come up, to to step away from life as normal, even to do things that are unsustainable. In the same way that for farmers, it, it was unsustainable to just spend all their time in Jerusalem. Lord, let us worship you for a season, for a pilgrimage unsustainably. So that when we we return to life, we would have things that you planted, things that you did, memories we will one day day hold, and where our spirits are dry, that we would say, I want to go back there. I want to go back to when it felt like God was sitting right beside me, when I felt good about the future that laid ahead of me, when I felt untouchable by the sorrows that surrounded me, when I felt that I stood on top of the problems in my life because the Lord stood with me. I want to go back there. So God, I pray for right now, for callings of assent to fall on each one of us, that we would feel your call to change life up, to do things different and to follow you in this time. God, I pray for the brokenhearted in here who do not feel like doing it. Lord, would you allow them strength? Would you lend them the will to begin to plant, to trust in the process though their feeling says otherwise? they too would return with sheaves in their hands and laughing and joy that though they went out and they started this pilgrimage set out with tears that they would come back with a harvest let us be changed forever by our pilgrimages to you by our ascents to you God I pray that this year would be one where our relationship with you would advance greater than we could have imagined surprise us with that Lord in your name I pray Amen